I usually take these intros to talk about the themes at large in the episode or the books themselves, talking about my guest or, you know, things that are relevant. But I wanted to take a little time to say fall is finally here, at least in our part of the country. The weather was really nice and cool today, a, a tight 66 degrees, breezy, cloudy, perfect for curling up with a warm cup of beverage, beverage of your choice, and a nice book. For me, I thought I'd get ahead on some of the podcast reading for episodes we have coming up, but instead I just picked out some random things from the library and put off those books that I have to read. Even projects for fun, I still find a way to procrastinate. Ah well, I'll make time. Welcome to your favorite book. My guest this week is the co-host of The Woke Desi and the author of the upcoming novel, Love Chai and Other Four-Letter Words. Anika Sharma, how are you today? Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me and I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. I love how we start the intro and immediately we've got a police siren going and it's like... <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, I know. I closed the window specifically so that you couldn't hear that and I tried to hope to God that that wouldn't happen again. And of course, it's like... The police and the fire departments, I swear they know any time that I have a really big meeting or anything like that. And we also live in a high rise. And so we pick up the sound from like a two mile radius, I swear, because it just comes all up. So I apologize. No, you're, you're totally fine. I'm visiting my parents this weekend and they have a dog and I'm like highly anticipating some barking dog noises at some point. It is just par for the course when we podcast. And I know you know all about that. <laughs> And so uh, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to a while, especially since I found out about your book and your show, and especially when you chose the book for this week. I am so excited to talk about The Palace of Illusions. Uh, but before we get to all that, Annika, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah. So hi, listeners. My name is Annika Sharma, and I am by day a communications project manager at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. And by night, I am the co-founder and co-host of a podcast called The Woke Daisy, which follows South Asian millennials and really experiences and documents the issues that we face as dual identity children of immigrants. And the podcast has been so lucky to have expanded outward into countries like South Africa and England and Australia and found listeners in all of those places who resonate with the things that we've been talking about. And it's just been explosive. We've gotten to interview celebrities. We've gotten to talk about some gritty topics like sex trafficking, and it is one of the highlights of my life. I am also the author of, as Malavika said, the upcoming book on September 21st, Love, Try, and Other Four-Letter Words. And it is a love story that follows Karen and Nash, who are an Indian transplant of about 10 years in the, the United States and a American Caucasian guy who is a little bit of a buffoon sometimes, although he's very <laughs> intelligent educationally, and um, and how they kind of navigate their interracial re relationship and romance when her family has gone through a lot because of love. His family has been absent and has influenced his decision not to really fall for anyone either. So it's set against bucket lists in New York City, and I am very excited for the release. And I just turned in book two in this series, which feels like one heck of an accomplishment after this last year and trying to figure out 
what the heck is happening with everyone's lives in the pandemic and trying to write and be creative through all of it. I am impressed just by the sheer body of work that you have because you are you are very similar to me in that we have day job, uh, we're podcasters, and you have books out. I'm currently working on a book. And I am curious, just before we get started with the details of your book, tell me about your writing process. How do you find balance between some of these things? Do you have a dedicated writing routine? Tell me about that. That's such a good question. I feel like that's one of the ones that I get a lot. How do you find balance? And I think that it's ever elusive because- yeah. The person in the situation, as I'm sure you can relate, never feels like they're balanced. So they're always like, oh my gosh, something is taking over. Something has been lost. I have dropped the balls. It's really bad. Um, but I think that one of the things that I've really tried to do is realize that I can do and be anything, but I can't do everything. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a lot of moments, especially this last year, as I keep mentioning, as it is been for everybody, but also this summer when the release started picking up and I needed to turn in book two. And there was a lot of things happening personally with my brother getting married and we have been moving. We were thinking we're now going into nomad life. Um, we are, you know, I still have a day job that's very demanding. All of those things can be conflicting at times. And I think one of the things that I've learned is just to prioritize one or two things per day. It's not going to be every day full of 10,000 words of writing and a fabulous podcast episode and a great day at the day job where I'm getting a promotion, as well as being a good wife and daughter and friend and sister. And some days I'm fabulous at some of those things and other days I'm horrible at all of them. And so I think it's really just about knowing, okay, I'm doing all of these things because I love them. And I will give them my best, but my best looks different day to day. Yeah. And that, that's been a huge lesson and it's still something I struggle with to be completely candid, but it's definitely influencing the balance that I have and kind of making it a more positive experience because there are so many days that feel very overwhelming, especially now where everything is heightened and people are often outraged and you're always afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And then on top of that, you're trying to actually to make change in the world. And mm -hmm. sometimes all of those things can be at odds with one another. So that's kind of where the balance has been. And in terms of a writing process, I write the best in the morning. I think that's one of those critical things that everyone should know about themselves is what times does your mind work best in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And for me, I do better when I have meetings in the afternoon and I and then I get to be creative and be left alone for the morning because that's when my writing is the best. That's when my work quality at work is the best. It's the time where creative juices flow. And then in terms of writing process, I have just now finally become the kind of writer who is no longer a pantser, but an actual plotter, ah. which is spectacular. I've never, I've never known the magic of it. I was kind of both like vaguely, you know, like, oh yeah, I kind of know what's going to happen, but like the scenes kind of write themselves. And now I'm like, listen, this for myself is entirely not a functional mechanism to keep moving forward and to be able to meet deadlines and to deliver products. So um, I finally full-fledged outlined my book two in this series, in the Chai Masala Club series, and it was life-changing. It was fabulous. I'm so happy that I did it. And so now I'm like, oh, okay, I think this is how we're going to move forward from now on because it kind of jumpstarts the engine in the morning whenever you're thinking – okay, what do I have to write? And you have an outline to follow and you have a rough scene to kind of go with. It's been very helpful. So I think that that's kind of 
where I stand with the process at the moment. All else is variable depending on the day. I love your candid nature approaching all of this because you're absolutely right. Balance is the kind of thing that looks different day to day. And if it just means prioritizing one thing, if it means prioritizing prioritizing multiple things, or maybe it's just a day where you prioritize nothing and you sit in a heap and act like jello, like all of those days exist in our lives and we honor them all. And it, productivity means different things on different days. And I'm exactly like you. I am very much a morning writer. I like to get up first thing in the morning with my breakfast and sit down with my writing. And then I go to my job. If I do that, it's already set up for a good day. Some days are better than others, but that's the goal. And so I I envy people who can write late into the night. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I can write if I hit a certain point late into the night. Like, for example, when I was on deadline, there were many, many 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. nights. Yep. I hate them. I love my sleep. I function because sleep is the only time I really get to turn off. And so I really try to go to bed by 10, 1030 and wake up at anywhere between five and 630, depending on the day. And it's really important to me to be able to be healthy and to be happy to do that. And I do find that I do get a second wind. So if I manage to get my old lady butt up and stay up until 12am, then I can kind of keep going for a while. And I can be creative, but it's not something that I can do habitually. And I finally made peace with that whenever people talk about the hustle. Like you were saying with productivity, I feel like in the last 10 years, the hustle culture and the quote unquote girl boss culture has been toxic in so many different ways. But Mm -hmm. in the last year when we haven't been able to get away from it and we're often working from home, that is both great for it and making it worse. Good because it's opening up a world of possibility that we may not have faced in terms of, oh, I can step away for five minutes and write this really quickly if I'm at my computer working anyway, or I can stay a little later and just catch up on the things that my writing hours can go a little later in the morning because I'm going to stay a little later for work or, you know, the, the, the hours can shift a little bit and so can the productivity. But I also think that it took a little while to realize, oh, I don't have to be working every day that I'm at home and all the time that I'm near my computer because it can be very draining and it can really zap the creative well as well. And then also impact how you feel about work if you're constantly on call 24 hours a day. So finding that time to, like you said, honor the time off has been a little bit of a learning lesson, but but I also, you know, it's the balance is changes every day. Every All of us change every day. And we aren't often forgiving of that with ourselves. And we don't realize, oh, well, I woke up in a bad mood. That can really impact how the rest of the day goes. And it's okay to acknowledge that and just do your best and try to maybe, maybe that day is just getting through it Yeah. versus the next day where you feel great. And you're like, I am the champion of all the things. My to-do list is getting crossed off. Then fabulous. Go and do it and take care of it. And you're going to be great, but it might look different the next day. And Absolutely. it's really important to realize that. I'm glad you acknowledge all of those things. There's things that we've been ruminating for a while, but you know, we're really starting to have it take shape, especially with all the limits of the pandemic. And so speaking about your podcast a little bit, um, so The Woke Daisy, you've had it running for a little while now, and you cover so many different topics, and there's just sort of a breadth there. And tell me a little bit about how this podcast started and, you know, how you've seen it grow and evolve over the past few years and months. So, yeah, it's been about two years and change now since we launched. And it began in January of 2019. So 
my best friend, Mama Thavankat. I don't know if any of you listeners follow her, but you should. She is very big into the heartfulness meditation space, and she is very, I hate cars that have the engines that are intentionally designed to be loud. I swear that they do it just to get the attention. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so my best friend, Mamata Venkat, she called me and we were talking about a whole bunch of things as best friends do. And she said, you know, I think you really should start a podcast. You have a lot to say. And I had just started a new job at Cornell and I was like, no way. I do not have the time between that and writing this is ridiculous. So obviously a month later, the idea had stuck and I was like, all right, I'm going to start a podcast. (laughs) So I didn't know where to start. This is how woefully ignorant I was in the process. I put out a call in a South Asian women's group on Facebook for a podcast that was like sex in the city meets the real or the view or something that you could have multiple women come in and talk about their experiences as dual identity immigrants. That's all I had in my mind. I was thinking, The way I pictured it was if someone came to your apartment, your brick walls, and someone comes in and you cuddle in with blankets and a cup of chai and you're just having a chat. I put out this call, 700 people like it, 65 people reach out to be a part of it, 40 people respond to the Google Forms thing. I didn't even listen to their voices. Keep in mind, this was for a podcast, which is (laughs) an audio platform. And I put out this call, 45 people respond. I chose based on that. I had not even heard them. I started with six co-hosts, which... Also, audio platform is entirely too many people if you don't have a visual element to go along with it. They can't recognize your voice unless they know you. And in this case, they most likely wouldn't. So eventually, all of us had side hustles going on. So three people dropped very, very quickly. And we launched with three people um, in May of 2019. And then post season one, which is about 10 episodes, our third co-host dropped off because she was starting a business and a brand and she needed a lot of time to dedicate to that. And me and my co-host Nahal moved on, moved on with it. We've launched about 80 episodes so far, and we were recently featured in May in Forbes. And then on our faces, we're on a Spotify campaign across San Francisco and across New York. And that was wild to be seeing just along these link New York City boards around the city and to walk around and be like, that is my face. About 30 <laughs> pounds heavier than it is now, but it's my face. And... Um, It's been an incredible journey just to connect with South Asians across the board. I'll be completely honest. I grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania in a college town that was very white and diverse because we were affiliated with Penn State University and, of course, all the faculty and um, a lot of the staff and students are immigrants, but it's a very transient town. And so the families that stayed there, especially the the Indian families, we had four other kids in my graduating class, and it was a class of 600 people. So it was not a very diverse area or a place that I could really be exposed to Indian culture, but it's incredible now to be invited to events or to be seen as a voice for a lot of South Asians when I never felt like I was comfortable in that brown skin to begin with. And I find that incredible, and I I feel privileged and lucky to – be able to talk about some of these things. And I've had such a humbling experience learning what kinds of South Asians are out there across the world and how we all identify differently or similarly to our identities, what our immigrant experiences have been like, what our parental relationships are like, how that influenced how we see the world and what stereotypes and what expectations we set ourselves up against and how we've navigated that. Because As funny as it sounds, whenever we watch those videos and laugh about 
how every single person whose parents are from a different country say, well, you know, we have these identities that kind of conflict. <laughs> actually don't talk about that all that much on a really granular level with, hey, this is exactly how we approach sex. And why is that? This is how we approach motherhood. And why is that? This is how we judge people who are child free. Why is that? Mm-hmm. And those are conversations we have with our friends, but to be able to do it on an online platform really helped me in particular feel like people in rural America or people who are maybe the only, who were the only kids in their class who were brown mm-hmm. finally said, oh my God, somebody gets it. And I don't think that anyone should ever go through life feeling alone, particularly minority populations, because we're already systematically designed to feel that way. Yeah, It's already something that we're going to be up against all the time, whether it's in our job or whether it's in our personal life or whether it's with our identity in relation to the whole world. And so these podcasts and these ways to real to connect with people has just meant so much over the last couple of years. And the podcast has just been an extraordinary way to do that. That That's incredible because you're exactly right. I mean, especially now, I think, you know, it's, it's such an isolating time in general. And I know myself, I started this podcast as a quarantine project, as, a, as an effort to connect to others. And mm-hmm. you're right, as a minority, we're always trying to seek connection and find others who relate to the specific nitty gritty. And you're right, there's always that broad conversation about identities and conflict, but getting down into those details is really what makes your show meaningful. And it really what makes it, you know, stand apart from other shows. And I'll be honest, I mean, as a it's a small, small universe, the South Asian podcasting space, but you and Nahal have been an inspiration in what you do. And so it's great to have you sharing the the airwaves, so to speak. Thank you. Yeah, it's incredible. And the other thing that I really value and hold close is the fact that people talk about representation a lot, whether it's in literature, whether that's in podcasting, whether that's in any space at all. And we always say, God, you know, they just didn't represent well enough. And I keep thinking as long as we can say that, that means there are not enough of us out there because it means that that story wasn't spoken to. And I also don't think that it's wrong to have stories that look different than ours because everybody's experiences have been different. Sometimes I read criticisms of my work. Sometimes I read criticisms of other people's work. They'll say, well, my Indian American experience wasn't like that. And it took me a little bit of, first off, just a little bit of humbling to be like, oh, whoops, it doesn't speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I also realized people are so desperate to see themselves, whether it's in the podcasting space, whether it's in film, whether it's like with the success of Never Have I Ever. A lot of us were like, oh, thank God. But a bunch of us also said, hey, this isn't really that great. Maybe it's from a white gaze. Maybe it's from, you know, it's not inclusive enough. Whatever it was, people still had their kind of, gripes with all of the way that representation is shown across all of these mediums, which means that there's still not enough people out there who are sure. doing that work. And those, there's so many elements of that pipeline that need to change, whether that's producers and executives on the film level who are deciding to greenlight these projects in the first place, or whether that's opening up the fields for writers and opening up the field for publishers to tell these stories and make their readers felt seen. Yep. Or, you know, whatever field that looks like, whether it's a boardroom at your workplace that is completely white and making decisions for people who are not, those are all things that need to change. And I think it really highlights our role in the world and how we relate to it. And one of the things that the podcast has taught me so much is 
it's not a competition between how many brown people can succeed and it shouldn't be viewed that way. I think it is, if you're in the center of the stage, you have the power to make the stage bigger. You have the power in that case to push those boundaries out, pull people on stage. And the fact is, is that even if the audience is similar or even the same amongst you and another show that's run by South Asian people, it's an extraordinary experience to have pieces of their identity now found in multiple different locations. How cool is that to not only have one, but to be able to look around and say, hey, you know, if I want a book, great, I'm going to your favorite book. If I want to talk about my identity, I'm going to the Wokesi. If I want to talk about, I don't know, uh, if I'm in college, I want to go to Loudmouth Ledkies mm-hmm. and I want to listen to their podcast because they reach a younger demographic mostly than the Wokesi does. So all of these things are fabulous and we want those things to happen. And I, I've never realized how important it is for us to take an active role in that representation on a more regular basis. So it means a lot to me that you're also sharing those airwaves because it does matter. These things do matter for everyone who's listening, for everyone who's watching, and hopefully it empowers them to take on their own roles too. Absolutely. I I have absolutely zero to add to that. And normally I have everything to add to everything, but that stands alone and that is spot on. And so now I want to move it over to your book and I want to talk about some specifics that I really liked in this book. So one of the things, um, so you follow Kieran, and she is an, um, an immigrant from India. She's a transplant. She's been in the United States for about 10 years. And she's contrasted with Nash, who is, you know, a white American, new to New York, new to Indian culture. And there were so many things about this book I loved in terms of relevance to my own life. So I'm an Indian American. I'm married to a white American. We lived in New York for a couple of years. And he, like Nash, was very unaccustomed to Indian culture. Our conversations about culture and about differences, there was a lot of similarities there. There was a lot of that learning. And what I really liked about what you did is you showed it it was a reciprocal learning. It wasn't just Kieran teaching Nash about her culture. It was Nash also sharing a little bit about how he grew up and how his culture is different and them acknowledging the differences in how they communicate and what their value differences were. And so I really liked how you represented culture as a a back and forth rather than a labor that only belonged to Kieran. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad that it resonated. There's obviously, you know, through reviews, through feedback, you always get a little bit of a learning curve and you realize, you know, I could have done that better as a craft. I should mm-hmm. develop that. Or next time, don't be afraid to say you really don't stand for X, Y, Z and make it overt instead of kind of still putting it a little bit through a filter and making it kind of a gentle mm-hmm. insinuation that you don't stand for certain things, make it overt and say, I don't stand for that. Especially in today's world where you're kind of required to as a writer to stand, take a stand on all the things you believe because otherwise people say, you know, it doesn't come across. But this this particular story was close to my heart because I do think that that's so important is to realize, especially coming back to that whole dual identity thing that we talked about with the podcast, mm-hmm. we are lucky because we come from this collectivistic culture where we have largely, you know, this really great network that can kind of chime in sometimes and influence our decisions in positive ways. But that can be so negative sometimes too, to mm-hmm. carry that pressure on your shoulders and let it influence what decisions you do make and sometimes limit you from making choices that might be best for you. And I wanted Garen to have kind of a reckoning moment when she fell in love to, to be able to say, oh crap, I've been, you know, following the pattern, following the formula. Maybe it is time that I learned to put myself first and it is hard and it's a journey, but I'm going to take my stand. And 
And for Nash too, I think the funny thing that we always say is, you know, if you're in New York, obviously you're this very liberal, very woke, very, very in tune <laughs> person. That is so not the case. No. I think if you want to seek out other cultures, you have to be willing to seek out other cultures. And I think that's the whole point with Nash is that there's not not all white people want to reach out or have had the opportunity or since I grew up in a small town this is something I actually drew upon is a lot of people will be afraid because they're afraid to do it wrong yes and they want to but they just don't know where to start and I had a girl I remember I used to work with and she said I've never tried Indian food and I said, well how, well, how come? And she said, well, I really wanted to, but I wanted to do it with an Indian person because they could kind of help me guide my way through this and do it, get the best stuff and really learn to appreciate it. And I don't want to go wrong and hate it because I was an idiot and I did it wrong. Mm-hmm. And I thought on one hand, yeah, I realize how people might say that puts the labor on the person of color to say, hey, here's my culture. But on the other hand, a little bit of handholding one way or another and making, like you said, that given a take can be very eye-opening for both parties and that can be really helpful. I'm not saying it's always appropriate. I think that a lot of the time the burden of responsibility does fall on the person of color and that can be really heavy to carry. But in a place like a relationship where there has to be some level of intimacy, it has to be a give and take. Yes. And hopefully you do get there a friendship or whatever. Hopefully you get to a place where it's 50-50 and that, you know, you are able to learn as much as you're able to teach. Right. And I, and I hope that I managed to get that in the book. I hope that that's, that's the, where we go with it. Um, you know, now, now that we're two days from release, I'm like at the level of paranoia, I think where I'm like, Oh my God, I totally didn't do this right. Did I, but I, I hope we got there um, somehow. And people realize that there is, you know, that, that the balance is achievable in some regards with life. And that's one of them where you can learn in, about each other. And that's, with all of writing, the human condition, right, is to yes. find the commonality Absolutely. amongst different cultures. And that's what I wanted to get at. There is beauty in that, too, especially in these heightened emotions, especially yes. at this divisive time, that there can be handholding to say, we've got this together and we can get through this together. And speaking of balance, I mean, you're somebody who takes on a lot of serious topics in your podcast. I mean, uh, sexuality, trafficking, you know, mental health, uh, all sorts of different things that you take on. And there are difficult topics in this book. You know, we have family conflict, we have addiction, mental health, a lot of different things that you're taking on. And at the same time, you have these lighter, romantic, you know, bucket list kind of moments. Did you find it hard to balance these elements and still create a feel-good story? Was that something that you had to work to to achieve that balance? This is such a good question because it is so layered in so many different ways. And one of the things that I know I really struggled with was trying to make it not too... Ne- so this book is obviously going to be in a Western market. Mm-hmm. I knew that with the release. The, the rights right now are for a Western market. The hard part about relating and writing about your culture is that you see the really garbage sides of it that make you so angry and that make you want to just like rip books to shreds when you talk about it because you're so angry. But you also have the pressure as a writer not to write about them in a way that the Western world reinforces their biased beliefs against your culture. Mm -hmm. So I found myself at times, and I still regret that a little bit with this book, there are moments where I didn't overtly dive into a lot of these difficult topics. I think I did a decent job, Mm -hmm. 
but there's always space to get better. And I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. And I think you, I had a very hard time diving in because I was like, most of the people that are going to read this are most likely going to be white. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to look at that third world country and think to themselves, <laughs> well, this book just makes it completely, you know, all my preconceived notions about this are 100% true now that I've read this book mm-hmm. and it's like dived into this conservative belief. On the opposite side, there's both, you know, beauty and burden that come from being a person of color in the West. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to also convey that there is a scene without any spoilers, I hope, where there's a pronunciation issue with mm-hmm. Karen's name. Karen's name is not all that hard in the grand scheme of things. And I am South Indian. So a lot of South Indian names can be very tough to pronounce for people. Their tongues just cannot wrap around them. Same. And I, yes. And I hate the fact that people are apologetic about that or that we have to change our names sometimes to be more Western, even though their tongues were not made to wrap around the syllables that we've created over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to illustrate that because it was such a basic way to respect someone, their name, and it wasn't pronounced right. And I was like, these are the moments that drive me off the wall that I can illustrate with my writing and nail and hopefully make poignant and make people realize like the basic amount of respect that comes with that. So, you know, it's, I don't even know if I'm answering your question the right way because it just opened up a can of worms at this point <laughs> about, you know, how um, how diving into these things, these difficult topics can be a challenge. And the other element that's kind of challenging is that you can't address everything. Yes. If I really had dived into some of these topics more, I would address casteism. I would mm-hmm. address SES. I would address racism in the U.S., I would be a hell of a lot more harsh about racism in the U.S. I would also be a hell of a lot more harsh on caste. It's just that you have a 400-page limit, essentially, to talk about those things. And I can't make this a textbook when I'm trying to balance a love story. Right. And I would love to, but it was very much a which direction do you want to go in? Someone's going to lose some way. Yeah. And you know, I, at the end of the day, I wanted to focus on the love story. So I had to choose that direction. And it was also once again, coming back to this Western gaze to say, okay, I can't dive into this because if I can't do it justice, I don't want to dive into that depth where I can't pull myself back. And I'm also only reinforcing more stereotypes about India in particular. Mm -hmm. And it is a tough balance. I don't know if I'm ever going to get it right. I don't know if any writer is ever going to get it right. I think mentioning it and hopefully doing some justice to it and hopefully kind of illustrating it does a good job. And that's a place that I'm willing to learn as we go forward because they're tough topics. And these are also very human, very um, collaborative stories that try to bring people together. And so it's really hard to find that balance. I'm hoping I hit it at some point, but, um, but you know, it is tough. It is tough. I'd be lying if I said that it was an easy balance to find. And that's something coming from someone who does so much research on these topics of the podcast. Yeah. And who knows if I write this and I don't do it well, it'll come back, it'll come back and backfire on the people that I'm trying to protect and the people that I'm trying to write about beautifully in the first place. My people I'm trying to write about beautifully and it might come back and backfire on all of us. Right. And it's scary. And that leads you then to representation and the pressure that we put on the people who have made it into certain spaces to be representative of everybody because we don't have enough there. Yeah. And so all of our hopes and dreams are wrapped up in them. 
And so, you know, this sort of of just went into like 20 different tangential points. And I apologize for that. But it's a it's a complicated area, I think. And I'm realizing that more and more this summer as the book started coming closer to release and people started talking about, oh, I loved it. Or people started talking about, God, it could have been better and these things. I also wanted people to know because I'm in the podcast space that I was listening mm-hmm. and that I, I I genuinely understood. And, you know, someone said, well, how do you deal with the haters? I said, I don't think there are haters. I think that if they, if they don't like something subjective, like writing craft or she writes too slow or the book is not heated enough or whatever, those things are all subjective. Those are yeah. fine. Those roll off my back. I'm not even thinking about them. Right. Great. You're completely entitled to your opinion. I hope that you like it, but if you don't, that's okay. But when it comes down to identity I realize it's highly personal and yes. I realize that there are places to learn and that there's a, this is a to- this is a tough topic for any writer of color yeah to be able to represent their culture in a way that hits every mark the way it's supposed to do it I think that we're always going to fall short exactly I mean writing is inherently this act of vulnerability and as a writer of color that vulnerability is increased tenfold by this pressure to represent an identity and like we've talked about when you're underrepresented you feel like you have this pressure to show absolutely everyone's identity when in fact you can only be faithful to yourself to your characters to the intent you're putting on the page and you realize that you're not going to encompass everyone nor should you want to because that's a space for others to tell their stories and as South Asian creators that's something we all want every South Asian writer I've spoken to all we want are more stories, more identities, you know, ex- like really showing us the spectrum here. And you've shown us one little corner. And I know the Chai Masala Club is going to show us all sorts of other little corners. And I'm so excited for it. Thank you. Yeah, me too. I was writing when I turned in book two, I thought, yeah, this sounds nothing like book one. That's it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not as heavy culture wise. And it's a little more like, when I say superfluous, I think it just sounds it sounds funny, but it's more just about the people themselves and the situations that they're getting themselves into, and it's so mm-hmm. ridiculous. And you're like, this is this is not even necessarily a cultural thing. In some ways, it's tied in, but on other hand, you know, like on another hand, you're kind of just diving into a rom com. Yep, and um, it is a little bit different. And and Phil is a very different character than Karen, so yes. it's going to be really fun to to dive in. I'm so excited for it. And now before, you know, we we could talk about this forever, but I want to jump into talking about The Palace of Illusions, which I am so happy you chose. It's a really interesting book, one I had heard about a lot, and I've heard so much about the writer, and this is Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni, and she's well known for just the number of different stories she's told, and they're all different. They all take on so many different topics, and this particular book, it's essentially a retelling of the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, the Hindu epic. Um, through the perspective of one of its foremost female characters, who is Draupadi, uh, the queen uh, of and the wife of the five Pandava brothers. And we're going to provide some cultural context as we go. I'm sure a lot of our listeners may have encountered the Mahabharata. Some of some of you may not. And so we're going to talk about that in a few different ways. But before we get into some details, Annika, can you tell us, you know, when you first read this book and what your impressions were? Yeah, I read it about two years ago. I had seen it on the same brown girl group that I had messaged or put a call out for co-hosts on. And someone had said, oh, I want book recommendations. And someone said, oh, this is a story about the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata is my favorite story of all time. It's such a good story. It is. Yeah, it's a religious text and it's very much a a family saga. And there's so much drama in this thing. And it is... (laughs) You know, they did this 
TV series in, I believe it was 1986, um, or it might be even earlier, I'm not sure anymore, um, but in the 80s. And it was something like a hundred and some episodes. And they broke down this story, which for the record is the longest epic in history. Mm-hmm. And so they broke it down into the, the beautifully done 1980s version is still the classic standard that everybody has tried to emulate in the years following and no one has matched. And the country used to shut down. My parents told me the country used to shut down. All the stores used to close early on the night that the show would air so that everyone could go watch it. And even the actors had such a reputation for their characters that one of them, who was, in fact, Muslim, changed his name to Arjuna, which is a very, Mm -hmm. you know, a a main character who is obviously Hindu. And it was uh, super fascinating. And the story itself has been my favorite for my whole life. My dad and I, my dad is a Vedic scholar, which means that he has read all, not only read, but it has deep dived and learned um, about the Vedas, which are the religious, um, the, te- the relig- some of the religious texts of Hinduism. And so I grew up learning the story. I grew up hearing lessons about it every other day. And our family used to watch it in the summers together. And so when I heard about this book, that is, from the female character that I've always wondered about, whose perspective is never properly covered yep. in the actual story itself, because it's the whole story is basically about this family and men and all of them are fighting over a kingdom. And this extremely fascinating woman is completely overlooked in the grand scheme of things, even though she's driving the story behind the scenes. I heard about it and I was like, I got to read this. Mm-hmm. I want to know what's, what's happening. And it was, I still remember I read it in a day, I think. And I finished it at like 3 a.m. because I couldn't put it down. Yes, it's that kind of book, absolutely. And your experience with the Mahabharata, it's got similarities and differences to mine. And so, I mean, I, I don't come from a Vedic scholar background. And I'm sure my parents probably watched some of the Mahabharata when they were growing up in India. But my experience with it was actually through, and I've talked about this before, Amachitrakadas. Yes, um, I learned to read all of those. I actually bought, I'm not kidding, the Mahabharat hardback version of all those comics for my husband who did not grow up with those stories. Oh my so. gosh, they are the best. I have the hardback Amrachutrakada Mahabharat. It's like a five volume, whatever, yes. like large thing. And my sister had those. My sister was very into all the epic stories and I read them along with her. And just as pure storytelling, like it is unmatched. Like you said, it's the longest epic. I mean, probably the closest Western equivalent I can give you is like the Iliad. Um, but this is even larger in scope than that. You know, the number of different things we're representing here. And you're right, this this um, Draupadi or Panchali, as she's known in the book as well, She her perspective is definitely driving a lot of what's going on, but we rarely hear her voice. We It's really told through the eyes of men. And so I really loved this interpretation. It has some distinct feminist kneelings here. And I, I really enjoyed this book. And I was so impressed by the fact that the author managed to give us the salient portion of the Mahabharata in a pretty short book. Like, how did you do that? I have asked myself that every single time I think about this story. I have no idea. This epic is insane. It's like hundreds of thousands of stanzas long. Mm -hmm. And somehow she managed to consolidate a very, very in-depth story with all the symbolism involved with it all into a very palatable, not epic length book or novel. And I love the feminist themes. I have struggled with that element 
of these stories for my whole life. With the Ramayana, which is the other largest epic from Hinduism, there are perpetually things I still argue with my dad and still walk away, even after years of going over the same thing and understanding where he's coming from, walking away going, I still don't agree with it. (laughs) Whereas when I read this book, it was like a whole world opened up in understanding the perspectives and even the challenges that perhaps she faced um, in in the story, whether it happened or whether it didn't, you know, yes. based on faith. But it's um, it was it was so magical to read and to understand and to be angry about. And there's scenes where, in the original Mahabharata, you wonder, well, what did she think about that? And I didn't get to even hear that what the heck and then you read the book and you think maybe that is how she could have felt it and it was so beautifully and artfully done that I was just you know floored by the end of it and I kept thinking okay this is I was nervous because when you read something that you're either involved with that has to do with a religious faith or you have to read something that's so ingrained in a culture people get very very sensitive to any changes that you may make yes and With India in particular and South Asia in particular, regional differences are enormous Mm -hmm. and there are over 250 languages. There are so many interpretations of religion and of of faith, of mythology, of the stories that we all tell within, you know, even superstitions are are different from region to region. And everyone takes that so highly personally that if you don't get it right, it can be so overwhelming. And I always wondered, oh my God, how is she going to write something like this that mm-hmm. is has captivated nations for thousands of years? Yes. And she did it masterfully. She I really did. I was amazed at the end of it. Yeah. I What I loved are that in many ways, she's very faithful to the text. I mean, she represents all of the major characters. She shows mm-hmm. us sort of the dynamic differences between these five brothers. So to give everyone a little background. So as we mentioned, Draupadi is the wife of the five Pandava brothers. And essentially, these are the exiled sons of a late king. And they are pitted against their cousins who are rivals for the throne. And this culminates in a war of all wars. You know, it's a large scope war. It takes over 18 days. But the carnage is immense. Like, this is a war that basically sparks a whole new age of humanity. And the gods also get involved. So it's similar to the Iliad or some of the Greek epics in that way. And there are many ways that it is faithful to the text, but there are also some very salient differences, particularly with uh, Draupadi's romantic life. We're not going to get into too many details to avoid spoilers, but there are some liberties that the author takes. And it's easy to see where readers could feel like, okay, this isn't in the text. I don't like these choices. I personally enjoyed them because with a text this old, we've seen countless retellings of Greek myths with, you know, several different interpretations. We've seen countless tellings of biblical stories with different perspectives and giving us, you know, a new way of potentially looking at a character. I I don't see that as a bad thing in an age old story like this. You know, it's an interpretation. It's not meant to stand in for the original. It's just meant to give us a new way of looking at this character who was never really given a voice for all we know. This is something that just didn't exist in the text. Yeah, it was very much, it felt like just a missing piece that could potentially fit into this age-old story as mm-hmm. opposed to a whole new take on it. Yes. It was kind of like, oh, this this is actually really nicely fitting in. Mm-hmm. And these are very human elements that she's added to this character that has both divinity and humanity in her. Yeah. And in even in the book or the, uh, the original Mahabharata, 
it's really magical to hear about how her perspective is flawed a little bit and yeah. very vengeful, rightfully so. There is a whole reason for why, and she is 100% right, like, you know, in the right for being vengeful. Yeah. She drives the war forward in the first place, and it's completely and totally understandable and, you know, and, and the, the thing to do. But it was also very nice to see her as not just the angry woman who drove a war and was willing to have hundreds of thousands of people killed on her behalf. It just added such a beautiful humanity to her that I thought the complexities here are layered and they're nuanced. And it's a whole section of the story that is glossed over and it's alluded to a lot, mm -hmm. but it didn't take away anything. It just was sort of an additive story, which I found incredible. Yeah. Um, and I loved that. And and I love the power, powerful way she wrote this character and, you, you close the book feeling very good about like, like yeah, go throw up with me, you know, and as opposed to like, oh God, you know, all these, all these South Asian women, whether even in mythology are completely, their voice is taken away from them. Yes. And it's like, in a way she gave it back. And I really, really valued that. And to, to have the story that I grew up with that has, that I think about every single day that I meditate mm -hmm. upon every single day and to think, okay, there was a really great take on this story that felt very, very true to the story itself. It was incredible. Yes, absolutely. And I really like, you know, getting on some of those feminist themes that really come through here. So there's a specific part I really liked about the story. And it was a portion where they're describing, so when Dropathy is married to the five Pandava brothers, this is considered very unusual. You know, this is a society where men have multiple wives and it's not frowned upon, but women never have multiple husbands. And so when the precedent for this is set, they don't allow Draupadi to have the freedom to sleep with who she wishes or prefer one husband over another. It's essentially each year you take one husband and then when you move on to the next, you have a boon granted upon you that you will be a virgin each time. And a boon is sort of usually in a lot of Hindu storytelling, it is, you know, a gift from the gods. And Draupadi rightfully says, you know, is this a gift for me or is this a gift for the men? You know, boons to women are typically, you know, for the men's benefit. And that just mm -hmm. gave me a thought and I'm like, wow, you know, you think of all the boons that have been given to a lot of the women in this story and in many other stories, and they are ultimately for the benefit of men. And just having that put on the page and put into words in such a, a clear, straightforward way. And as well, later on, when Draupadi is talking to the war widows and speaking to what their role is, it was just nice to have those individuals acknowledged. I'm so glad you brought up that example, because when we decided to speak about this book, that was the first one that came to mind as, mm -hmm. thank goodness, someone mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Because historically, and that is across, you know, different faiths, different mythology, as you pointed out, across cultures, women are always seen as the other half of a relationship with a man or a couple or the, the, the rock of a family that has to hold up everything and be all the things. And there's always a there's always pressure for these female characters to be the epitome of grace and to mm -hmm. be forgiving and to be feminine and to be kind and to have all of these different traits associated. And they're supposed to be these paragons of virtue. And I kept thinking when I read that particular scene with the virginity, that why is it that virtue is attached to that when she is tied to all of these men and they are all supposed to be like one to her. And, you know, it's just, it's just crazy to me that it, some of these things were tied to 
like her role in relation to a man as opposed to her role as a human being as a whole in driving one of the most powerful stories of all time. Right. So, you know, it, it, it was, it, it really minimizes her in the original story in, in some regard, because it's always talked about within, you know, she's married to these five men. What are these five men doing? She has, you know, a five boys each or whatever, you know, she has these children, these children, mm-hmm. how was she as a mother? And this story finally gave her a voice as a, person of her own and what what was she doing to drive these decisions what was she doing how did she feel about some of these things what she wasn't just a pawn in this story anymore she was a queen and you know she finally got to be the queen and that was very cool to read and I'm so glad that you mentioned that that example I don't think I did anything by adding to it here um because you mentioned it so beautifully and (laughs) you know it was it was really powerful to read that and to still feel respect given to the original story and also feel respect finally given to a character that was so central to the plot and not heard as much as maybe she should have been. Absolutely. You put it so well. Um, I think if we were looking at the book as a whole, so while there was a lot I enjoyed about the storytelling, about the interpretation, I mean, I'm a critic by nature, so I always have to bring in some literary criticism here. So to me, the book wasn't perfect. There were a few sort of writing conventions I always had a quibble with. So this book is very heavy on some of the foreshadowing at the end of chapters. It's like, little did I know, et cetera. Those tend to be sort of taglines at the end of chapters, which definitely serve their points in parts. But when you see those over and over, they do tend to lose their meaning. So that's a small drawback, very minor. Um, additionally, there are there is a lot of retrospective storytelling sort of brought into the fold. So it can be a little hard to follow the timeline. And then additionally, on the battlefield, there's a sort of convention given to Dropadi where she can sort of see the battle at large and see all the salient points of it. And I wonder, you know, does this really make sense with what we're given? Or is this sort of a means that we can view the battle from a literary perspective? So there are, you know, quibbles you can have with the construction. Overall, it didn't detract from my enjoyment of the book. Like you, I read this very quickly. I actually highly recommend the audiobook. It's very well done. And it, it's a very engaging story. I think the last point of discussion that came to mind reading this for me was the idea that you're very, you know, accustomed to the Mahabharata, you're familiar with it. I was also familiar with it enough that I knew these characters, I knew the story. I wonder how this book would be for somebody who is not used to the Mahabharata, because it is a lot of names, it is a lot of storytelling, it's a lot of assumed context. So this could be a couple of things, you know, maybe Divakruni understands her audience, she understands that those coming to the book likely know the story, and they're likely of a South Asian background and know this story. But it could also be, you could also look at this differently, and this is challenging my own perspective. A lot of us read, say, large fantasy novels. I think of The Priory of the Orange Tree, which I did an episode on a few months ago, which is 800 pages of giant fantasy universe. And we read that and we eat it up and we follow all of the immense world building and the names and how different those are. And we eat it up without thinking. So is this my own bias thinking, oh, because this is about my culture, it's a non-Western culture, are Westerners going to have a hard time with it when people can eat up a large fantasy novel without problems? So this isn't even a book I would say, read it if you're accustomed to the story. I would say read this if you enjoy myth retellings in general, because this isn't any more unapproachable than any of those others are. You're so spot on. When we were in English class growing up, we always heard about the Iliad. We mm-hmm. always heard about Western stories. And by Western, I mean stories that originated in Greece, stories that 
originated, even our history is tinged with empires like, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire or the English Empire. And we don't give enough credit to the epics and the spectacular stories that come from other parts of the world that are equally as, quote unquote, dense or, you know, involved. And the people that come from those places often find ourselves doubting ourselves and doubting our narrative ability to say, are these important enough to talk about? Wait, do we they need context? Why? Because they weren't Western. Mm-hmm. The what, what, you think the Iliad suddenly has magical context that makes sense in our world? You know, it's just a matter of, well, it came from Greece. So obviously it's historical and magical and wonderful and people <laughs> should be referring to it perpetually. But there are works of art that have come out of other parts of the world that deserve attention and that don't deserve to have a disclaimer about, well, this came from this place and this is why. I think that there is a very unapologetic way that she wrote the story in the sense that she didn't give the background. She didn't write it. I had this argument actually with an auntie in the community who said, um, oh, I think she wrote it for a white gaze. And I said, how did she write it for a white gaze? She just did. She just did. And I thought, I actually completely disagree. I agree. I think she did not write it for the white gaze because she didn't explain. She didn't give the backgrounds on, okay, well, this tradition is historically from this thing. And how do you even explain that in a story like this? You just write it because it is ancient and it is already time tested and you just have to dive right in and not be sorry that it didn't come from Greece or from Italy or from a Western country that has influenced history. And instead it's owning its historical roots. And I really found that to be incredible about the story and I really value it. So, you know, it's going back to what you were saying. It's just that we, we give disclaimers for anything that isn't seen as mainstream or taught in our schools or that hasn't come from Western history. But I think this story does a beautiful job of telling the story and not saying, I'm really sorry that you might not understand it because I think it puts the onus on the reader to learn. Yeah. And that is an incredible thing to do. There's something very admirable about writing without feeling like you have to explain away your culture and your heritage and your history and mythology and religion. And instead just say, here is my take on it. Absolutely. Do do what you will with it. Yes. Being unapologetic about your intent and that that does so much for storytelling that we it does appeal to the south asian gaze and to western gaze it's not any more unapproachable than any other epic might be and i highly recommend this book i encourage you all to pick this out it is not an overwhelming book in terms of its length i i think it's the prose is very approachable i think there's a lot to like about this and whether you're south asian or not i think you'll really enjoy this book i certainly did And before we close out today, I want to offer, you know, this is the part a lot of my guests enjoy and it's recommendations. So I always think, you know, what are other books that I would bring into the fold in conversation with this one? I think the obvious choices to me were the works of Madeline Miller. So the Song of Achilles and Circe being those Greek mythology retellings. Um, Those are the ones that I have read. Her works are, you know, incredible. They're given a, a tenderness and a nuance that I really enjoy. Um, giving you more of a feminist perspective. I think the works of Pat Barker, I've been told are excellent. I haven't read them yet. So The Silence of the Girls and The Women of Troy. So focusing on that female perspective at that time, I think those could be excellent reads. So those are the ones that come to mind for me. Annika, I'm curious if you have any books you'd recommend. I do. And they're not necessarily influenced by any kind of mythology, but it is from the perspective of female characters that have 
been overshadowed in history. And mm-hmm. I would say Indus Sundaration does a really nice job with um, the 20th Wife, the Feast of Roses, and the Shadow Princess, which are the Mughal dynasty in India. And the women who were pulling the strings behind the family that built the Taj Mahal. Oh. And it's about the queens and the princesses and their their ownership of power and how they were really running the show. And these emperors went down in history for the greatest symbols of love in history. But really, what were the roles of the women who all of these monuments were built to? Why were they built in the first place? And what kinds of personalities really ensured that they were cemented in history? And I think she does an incredible, beautiful job. They are slightly more Western gaze written, but of course that's historical. So yes. on, on one hand, I can't really, really come down on that too hard because history itself is, is also, you know, you kind of have to explain a little bit more. Um, but those are some of my favorite books as well. And I think that it's also, you know, royalty. It also shows the pressures that come, that came dif- at different times and how the roles of women are often written out or quietly glossed over in history books and how they did have a voice after all. And you get to read about them and see what could have potentially driven the decisions that changed all of history that we still read about now. And that's, I, those are some of my, I think in those generations books are some of my favorites of all time. And I was introduced to her probably in college. So now it's probably been over the last 15 years. Um, but I still love all of the things that she writes. I'm definitely going to check those out. I've been looking for more historical fiction, magical realism, all these books that focus on a, a feminist or female gaze. And so these definitely feel like books I'm going to pick up. My reading list always grows with every single one of these episodes. I will never finish my reading list. Um, but before we close out today, Annika, it was a pleasure having you. Where can we find you and where can we find your book once it's out in the world? You can find it on any major book retailer, actually. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop. And if you are not in the U.S., then Book Depository does do free shipping. So you can find it there. The book is titled Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words. It's the first in a series following four friends of Indian American or Indian descent. Um, Bile is British Indian, so I can't really say too much. I I was about to say Indian American, but they're not all Indian American. Um, Each of them has an exploration of love against the background of New York City and being in their late 20s and early 30s. And each of them has personalities that are very different from one another. And so I am very excited for that book to come out in the world. And I hope you like it. And if you want to connect with me, then I'm available at Anika Sharma, A-N-N-I-K-A-S-H-A-R-M-A on Instagram and on www.anikasharma.com and on Facebook and Twitter. And you can always find me at The Woke Daisy as well. Yes, definitely listen to The Woke Daisy. Check out Annika's book. Check out everything she does. I'm I'm a big fan and I'm so glad that you are giving us content in this space. And as always, you know, check into your favorite book every Thursday and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at YFB Podcast. Annika, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This conversation made my day and I've been looking forward to it. So I definitely did not disappoint. <laughs>